We are in the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 3. We're looking at verses 7 through 13. The church at Philadelphia. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. The topic, Jesus tells the Philadelphia faithful that he has the key to open the door that no one can shut. The title of our message, O Key, Door Key. Oh, man, that's all I got. Father, thank you for uh, the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. We appreciate the gift of uh, laughter as well, Lord. As we approach your word, as is our custom, Lord, we want to go through it verse by verse and understand it in its original context, see how meaningful it was to these believers in Philadelphia. And then we want to see ourselves in it too, Lord, especially because you tell us that Uh, If we have an ear to hear, we should hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I pray, Lord, that you would meet every need this morning in a way that no human being can, that no message can, uh, but in a way that you can by the ministry of your Spirit, taking the Word and applying it in ways that are so wonderful, too wonderful to understand. Uh, To those who are hurting and weak and suffering this morning, Lord, especially show yourself strong. Give us the grace of God that passes understanding, Lord. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. When our daughter was moving out of our home, I asked her to turn in her house key. It seemed appropriate to me. And by me, I mean only me. Both she and Pam disagreed with my request. Like Ricky Ricardo, I asked them, explain it to me. They were more than happy to oblige. I think it's called re-education. I got on board. Jesus presented himself to the church in Philadelphia as he who has the key of David. David, of course, is King David of Israel. God promised him a descendant who would establish the kingdom of God and rule over it forever. Jesus' possession of the key of David is proof that Jesus is the descendant of David who will establish the kingdom of God in the future and rule over it forever. The Lord's comments to the faithful believers in Philadelphia assured them of their future entrance into that forever kingdom. And since Jesus' comments to the churches in the Revelation are to all churches for all time, he is likewise assuring those of us who are in Christ that we too are assured our future entrance into the kingdom. I'll organize my comments around two points. No great tribulation for you. And number two, New Jerusalem awaits you. First of all, let's see that the church is not going to be in the great tribulation in verses 7 through 10. Monsters Incorporated, probably my favorite Pixar film. That explanation of the monster under your bed or in your closet, it's just pure genius. To enter the human world, the monsters had to go through a door. That sequence at the end, the door chase, it's a classic. You never know where the next door is going to take them. We know where our door is taking us in the future. It's into the kingdom with Jesus. And so verse 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. The angel of the church is referring to its pastor in his role of delivering God's message to the church. 
Even though all seven churches in the Revelation were contemporary and geographically pretty close, Jesus had a separate, unique message for each one of them. We should expect God the Holy Spirit to have a unique message for our church and for each of us individually every time we come together to worship the Lord. Uh, It's important that I think we have this sense of expectation so that we don't miss something that the Lord would have for us. And we believe that uh, God still works in what we would call the gift of prophecy. Now, when you say prophecy, most people think predicting the future, and that's part of it. Obviously, we just looked at some Bible prophecy stuff a little while ago. But prophecy is just speaking forth the truth of God, speaking for God, as it were. And a lot of times, a prophecy exercises itself as the Bible is being taught, kind of inadvertently. I don't think I have the gift of prophecy, uh, but if, there, if God is here and he anoints the teaching, then you hear things that God wants you to hear. It's an amazing thing to me. I, I joke about it, but a lot of times people will come up to me and say, man, that study today in Titus was just what I needed. And I, I used to say, well, you know, we're in Revelation. But then I realized, hey, praise the Lord. If you thought we were in Titus and you got blessed, the Holy Spirit is at work in this place, you know. How did it bless you for my next study when I do, when I do start Titus? I'd like to know. But uh, so really that sense of expectation and that, that excitement to actually get to your church. And see, this is what I'm saying. If you went to the church at Ephesus, if you were visiting from Philadelphia and you were in Ephesus, you would have heard a message to that church for that church. Now, there'd be stuff in it for you as well, obviously, he who has an ear to hear. But it's way different than the message to the church at Philadelphia that you attend. And so that's why it's important you decide where you're going to attend church, by the way, as well. Because God has unique messages for unique churches and a unique way of reaching you in the church that is your church home. And so it's pretty exciting to see how God uses his word in a living, powerful way. Jesus revealed himself to Philadelphia as he who is holy, he who is true. Holy is actually a title for the Messiah. Uh, You see that in Mark 124 and elsewhere. True means genuine or real. If you're on Twitter, you've noticed that famous people use the preface at the real to designate that it is really them. When I get famous, I will be at the real Gene Pensiero. And then there'll be a bunch of fake sites that are trying to knock me down. But I will win out. Anyway, I'm just thinking about being famous. Holy and true means Jesus is at the real Messiah. And so if Jesus wanted to go on Twitter today, he would be at the real Messiah. And so that's what he's saying. He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. In your employment, some of you are key holders. I found out this week that's actually a job designation. It's a way of having you be an assistant manager without paying you more. Because you have the responsibility. Actually, there's the manager, then the assistant manager has certain responsibilities, and then you're a key holder who opens and closes but can't do other things. There are four key holder jobs in the Tulare Kings County area right now, if those of you are looking to really uh, you know, get ahead in life. In your employment, you're a key holder. You open or shut your place of business. Jesus is a key holder. In Matthew 16, verse 19, he tells Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. In Revelation 1, 18, 
Jesus said, I have the keys of Hades and death. In our verses, he has the key of David. Now, a couple of chapters after Jesus said that he would give the keys to the kingdom of heaven to Peter, he makes it clear that he will give them to every believer in the church age. There was nothing special about Peter except for the way he was used. And a lot of people argue about, well, what does he mean by the key to the kingdom? Was Peter the first pope? Uh, you know, what does that mean? Well, Peter wasn't the first pope. There isn't meant to be a pope. Pope is not a designation in the Bible. But Peter wasn't even the leader of the first church. James was. And so what is this key all about? Well, how does Peter act in the book of Acts? And you can see what the key is all about. Well, first of all, on the day of Pentecost, when the church is born, Peter preaches a sermon. I think the other guys elbowed him and said, hey, you're up. You, you want to be the leader, so lead. And uh, he preaches a sermon extemporaneously, and 3,000 people get saved. Uh, it's, it's amazing. Then later in the book of Acts, Peter and John get sent to Samaria, uh, and he's used instrumentally in bringing the gospel to the Samaritans. And then Peter is the one God sends to give the gospel to the Gentiles as he visits Cornelius. And so the idea of the key is that when a Christian shares the gospel with non-believers, we are using the key in the sense that we have the authority on the earth to declare that their sins can be forgiven by believing in Jesus, that they can be saved for eternity, or that they will perish for eternity. Now, that's common to us as Christians. We, we don't think about it too often. Those are amazing declarations. When Jesus said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiving, the Jewish leaders went nuts. Only God can forgive sins. And so Jesus said, oh, well, so that you know that the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins, rise up and walk. And he did. And that is what Jesus is sharing with us as keys to the kingdom, keys to the kingdom of heaven, in the sense that we literally tell people, if you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will be born again, forgiven of your sins, and transformed into a new creation, and you'll be on your way to heaven. That's amazing. Do you, do you understand what kind of authority you have to have to say that? Heaven's authority. And so that's what we're talking about. That, those are the keys that Peter and all Christians have. Keys of Hades and death open two terrible doors to people who die having rejected the gospel. Hades is a temporary holding place. It's a place of torment for souls awaiting final judgment. Death here is what Bible calls the second death. It is resurrection to eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. So those who don't receive Christ reject him, uh, and they end up the recipients of the keys of Hades and death. The key of David looks forward to the future kingdom on the earth, the literal real kingdom. In 2 Samuel, God said this to David, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
Theologians call the unconditional promises that God made to David the Davidic covenant because they have to have a fancy name for everything. Can't just be the covenant God made for David. It's the Davidic covenant. So remember that. By kingdom here, we're talking about Jesus returning in his second coming, establishing a kingdom on this earth that lasts 1,000 years. When that millennial kingdom ends, Jesus will reign over the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever. Now, in the five previous letters, Jesus used a description of himself borrowed from John's vision of the Lord recorded in chapter 1. Regarding keys, in chapter 1, Jesus said, I have the keys of Hades and of death. But here he says he has the key of David. He goes to another key. And so you might have a question about that. Well, I just think that rather than focus on which key he pulls from his key back, the important thing is to see that Jesus is the key holder. And so it's not so much the key. He, he has whatever key you need at the time, and he has these specific keys. But he, we are seeing him from the first chapter as the key holder. He has the power and the authority to save and to consign you to Hades and death or to welcome you into the kingdom. And he delegates that responsibility to his church during the church age so that we might share the gospel with people. Verse 8, I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door. No one can shut it, for you have a little strength. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. They had commendable works, so little strength doesn't refer to spiritual strength. It most likely refers to their small size in comparison to the other churches. I have no problems with mega churches. The church started as a mega church. In the book of Acts, as I already mentioned, 3,000 souls were added on the first day. Not long after that, 5,000 more were added, and the indication was that those were just men, not counting biological women and biological children uh, who were also added. So there could be anywhere from 8 to 10 to 12 to 15,000 people in Jerusalem comprising the first church and they didn't even have a building. It was crazy. They were meeting from house to house. It was, uh, what a time to be alive. The truth is, the majority of churches are mini churches. In the United States, that means they are under 100 people. Everybody seems to have an opinion on mega churches or mini churches or what the right size of the church should be or just the church in general. To me, it's more important that a church have a testimony of how the Holy Spirit led them to be established and to be a church. And there's a lot I could talk about here, but splitting from another church over personal issues, or we started a church because I wanted to start a church, uh, you know, those kinds of things, they don't fly with me. Uh, there should be some sense of the supernatural leading of the Holy Spirit in starting a church. And then after it's established, it's up to the Lord how little or how large it should be. Uh, and so whether I prefer a, a little church or a medium-sized church or a large church, none of my business. That's up to the Lord. I just need to pray about where he wants me to go, where he wants me to attend, uh, and I just leave it up to him. Among their works, Jesus said they had kept his word and had not denied his name. There must have been some pressure to deny the Lord. They were enabled instead to keep his word. The key of David has entirely to do with the future kingdom of God. In verse 7, we saw the topic was the future kingdom. In verse 9, we're going to read worship before your feet. 
That's a scene from the kingdom. And in verse 12, it's entirely about our lives in the future kingdom. The door that this key opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens is our guaranteed entrance into the kingdom of God. It's not wrong to talk about open doors of missions, like God opened a door to Paul to go to a certain place, or not wrong to say, well, God opened a door for me to take this job. That's fine. But don't read that into Philadelphia. God's saying, I have opened the door to you to the kingdom of God. You can be assured that you are going into the kingdom of God in your glorified body and you will rule and reign with me forever and ever. And that might not mean a lot to some of us. Uh, We'll talk about this a little at the end, but it was tremendous to these believers who were enduring suffering and persecution under Roman domination, uh, struggling as maybe the smallest of the churches in this area. Uh, Right next to them, we're gonna find the next church is Laodicea, rich beyond imagination, just getting together. Society loved them. Of course, the Lord's going to have some impressive things to say to them. Uh, but so this is, a, this is a big deal to the church at Philadelphia. At the real Messiah was guaranteeing Philadelphia's finest that he would open the door for them to the kingdom and no one could shut it on them. Verse nine, indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. They were Jews physically. They were not Jews spiritually in the sense that they did not believe in their Messiah. Satan had taken over their synagogue. They were especially called out by Jesus for lying. They probably lied to the authorities about the Christians. One of the big uh, rumors and lies that they spread about early Christianity was that believers were cannibals. Given the opportunity, they were cannibals because why? They ate the body and blood of Jesus. Well, that's not exactly true, is it? No, it's not true at all. Uh, But they would spread these lies. And of course, the Roman government, there were groups that did things like that in Roman times, pagan times. Uh, It was a pretty bad society overall. And so uh, they slandered them. And, And so Jesus said, you know, you're not a Jew if you don't believe in the Messiah. I realized that uh, just as Satan took over synagogues, Satan can take over churches. You're gonna see some churches, not of Satan, but uh, as satanic. Uh, I just read about a self-described progressive Christian church. It's in Nashville. They just declared that the Bible is not the word of God. They say it is, and I quote, a living and dynamic, multi-vocal library of text that is a product of community as a human response to God. Check. <laughs> well, what does that even mean? I don't have any idea what they're talking about. Now, here, here's a kicker. The article said this. Think, think about this for a minute. Though receiving pushback from Christians, they did receive applause for their criticism of Scripture from popular atheist commentators. First of all, pushback, a little bit of pushback here. Hey, you need to call these guys out. This isn't pushback. This is you're an apostate. It's not like, well, you might want to think that through. I mean, you know, if I came out here on a Sunday morning and said, guys, the Bible is not the word of God. Just leave. Just get up and leave. There's no explanation. There's nothing else to do, right? And then if you read in the paper, 
Some atheist group is praising Calvary Hanford for their stand on the Bible. You know, give me a shovel, I'll dig my own hole deeper, you know? I mean, it's crazy. Oh, man. Sadly, we can expect a lot more of this apostasy as churches rush into this woke mentality or whatever you want to call it to try and engage culture and be more like the surrounding culture, which is just getting crazier all the time. And and it's, you know, the cancel culture and all of this stuff. Uh, And, you know, the church, the church has done pretty well for over 2000 years, right? Just by preaching the word of God, because why it alone is the power of God unto salvation. And if you take that away, if you say, well, it isn't really the word of God. First of all, you're calling Jesus a liar because he believed it was the word of God and quoted from it and called it the word of God and called David a prophet uh, and things like that. And so what can you learn about Jesus if he if you've declared him a liar? So it just it's either it's you it's either all or none. Really, it really is an all or none situation. Uh, but uh, mark my words, in a terrible way, churches are going to be gravitating in that area, and other churches are going to be dabbling with it uh, to try and seem like they are contemporary and edgy and this kind of thing. I'm not saying we're better than anybody else, but we want to stay on track. We want to do what we've always done because that is the kind of place you can bring somebody who will actually have their life transformed. There is no transformation in a, 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 a scripture that is not the word of God. When it becomes the word of men, uh, then you've, you're down to philosophy and psychology and things like that. We need the power of the Holy Spirit unleashed through the word of God. Jesus said, I will make them come and worship before your feet. We can rule out that Jews or anyone, for that matter, are going to worship us. That's, that's wrong. So in terms of the future kingdom on earth, we know that every knee shall bow to Jesus. And when the people of the earth worship him in the kingdom, we will be present as he is worshiped. And so that's what I think that means. I will make them know that I have loved you. What a beautiful sentiment before we get deeper into it. What a beautiful thing. For a couple, let's say, a husband and wife, to have so much love for each other that other people see that they love each other. That's, that's a goal, right? That's, that's something good. Somebody, your friend, takes your side and says, man, your husband really loves you, doesn't he? I mean, it's a great thing. It won't be hard for people to see that the Lord loves the church. We're going to return with him having been resurrected or raptured. Every eye will see us too. We'll have glorified physical bodies that are similar to the Lord's resurrection body. We will be holy and unblemished. We will be perfect in every way, transformed by his love. And so when Christians come back, when we come back with the Lord, people will look at us and say, that's what the love of God can do to a lost person. It can absolutely transform them into what a human being was meant to be in the first place, and to worship God, their creator. What, it's the, the bride of Christ, you and I, except for Jesus, are going to be probably the most beautiful thing in the universe in order to be his bride, and he's going to make us that way. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which will come upon the whole earth 
to test those who dwell on the earth. The Philadelphians were promised 100%, or if they were athletes, 110%, that they would be kept from the hour of trial. Hour of trial is what? It's the seven-year great tribulation that most of this book is about, chapters 6 through 19. There is no great tribulation for the church. The words keep you from, literally translate, keep you out of, you'll be kept out of the hour of trial. Second, the church will be kept out of the entire period of time, not just be kept safe through some of it. And third, when Jesus said they kept his command to persevere, he wasn't exhorting them to persevere during the future. It's in the past tense. They had already persevered in their walk and their work and their witness, and they would be delivered from the great tribulation entirely. Since the church is not going to be on the earth during the great tribulation, it presupposes that the Lord will return to resurrect the dead in Christ and rapture living believers before the great tribulation. The great tribulation is said to test those who dwell on the earth. What does that mean? Those who dwell on the earth is a particular phrase that is talking about non-believers on the earth. We know that from Revelation 17, verse 8, where it says, those who dwell on the earth whose names are not written in the book of life. You could not come up with a clearer statement in fewer words than this, that the church is not going into the tribulation. There's no other way to say it more clear or more forcefully and that's just the way it is. I'm sorry. Otherwise, words don't mean what words mean. Now, concerning the lost, God gives them opportunity to repent. And that's why we call this series, The Revelation, uh, The Grace of Wrath. God will be pouring out his wrath, yet still offering salvation by grace to sinners. In that wrath, he remembers his mercy and calls out through many means to every human being on the planet urging them to repent and receive the forgiveness of their sins and eternal life. Now, one argument people use or one concept that they have is that God needs to prove and purify his church through trouble, uh, and then you and I will be ready. Here's how the Lord is going to purify us. Tell me what you think. Is, is, is he going to purify his bride in the great tribulation that we'll read about, or is this the way he does it? Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. That's how the Lord purifies his church. It doesn't read that he might uh, hit her with wormwood and let uh, insects out of the pit that are demons that are going to attack them, uh, you know, and the things that we read about in the tribulation. Uh, and so uh, it's just, we're just not going to be there. I I'm sorry. I don't want to be there anyway, but it's, it's good that we're not going to be there, okay? And so if you have friends that are planning for the great tribulation, all right. Great. What do you, you know, uh, it, it, you don't want to be there and you're not going to be there and there's no clearer way to say it. We could also go off on talking about how it's really for Israel. It's the time of Jacob's trouble, the Bible says. How the church isn't mentioned from uh, chapter 6 all the way through chapter 19 until we return with the Lord. And when you pile all this stuff on top of this absolute foundation, we're just not going through it. Jesus doesn't 
purified the church by leaving us on the earth to suffer, there is no great tribulation for you. But the new Jerusalem awaits you. Have you seen somewhere online hilarious misspelled tattoos? These are real. Several examples of where they were going for no regrets. This actually happens multiple times. They're going for no regrets, but the finished tattoo reads, no regrets. Then there are these. These are real tattoos that people are happy to have. They, somebody posted the picture. You only life once. Never don't give up. It's get better. <laughs> and then my two favorites, no pen, no gain. And then this, this is real. <laughs> Thunder only happens when it's raisin. <laughs> that one comes out of Selma probably, but I don't know. <laughs> An honorable mention goes to a full back piece I saw that gets three points of the compass wrong. They get north right and all the rest are wrong. South is over here where west is. It's just crazy. Now, I mentioned tattoos because we're going to see in a minute there's a chance you might have one in heaven. Hold on to that thought. Verse 11, behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have that no one may take your crown. Quickly doesn't mean soon. It's that word we've encountered before from where we get our word tachometer. Once you put the pedal down, the tack redlines all at once. So Jesus is coming quickly doesn't mean soon or immediately. It means right now. It could happen right now, and we know it's going to be before the great tribulation. This is what we would call the doctrine of imminence, that the Lord could come at any moment. The Bible mentions different crowns as potential rewards for believers. For example, every believer, every believer gets the crown of life as a result of being saved. But only those who die for Jesus get the martyr's crown. There's that scene in The Right Stuff where one of the pilots uh, he wants, to, he wants to have his picture on the wall there in the bar that they all hang out in. And they all start laughing at him because you get your picture on the wall by dying in a plane crash. And he didn't realize that. And so uh, you're not going to get the martyr's crown. Don't go for that. Uh, it, it'll come your way if, you know, if things keep going downhill. But so only a few people get that. Coupled with his command to hold fast, I think Jesus meant to motivate us to go for it, serving him now so that we can earn even more crowns and even more rewards. The word translated hold fast means to seize. Remember the popularity of the phrase carpe diem, seize the day? It's still pretty popular. Crown in Latin would be corona. Seize the crown would be carpe corona. Another great slogan bites the dust because of the coronavirus. Or if you want to, we could do some shirts, Calvary Hanford, carpe corona, but I think... I think we'd be, maybe a Carpe Corona mask. That no one may take your crown cannot mean your crown could be stolen because it's in heaven where we're told that no thief can enter and steal. So let's say God has a work for you, but you refuse to perform it. That's possible, right? God may want you to do something. It doesn't have to be something great, but it might be something and, and you just don't do it. God will raise up someone else to do it. They will then take the crown that you could have received. The Old Testament book of Esther, Mordecai, Esther's uncle says, hey, 
you're probably the person that God has raised up to deal with this situation and help the Jews because now you're the queen of Persia. But then he went on to say, but if you don't do it, God will find deliverance from some other way. And so God gets his work done. And we shouldn't think, hey, I'll just, you do it. I mean, you have to think in terms of, hey, if the Lord wants me to do something, I should do it. And if I don't do it, I'm going to lose my crown. Uh, and, and I've talked to you before about how you're going to want to have crowns. You don't want to be the one kid at graduation who doesn't have a hat. And when everybody's throwing their hat up, you're like, just going like this, you know, with nothing in your hand. You, you want to enjoy that moment of giving your crowns back to Jesus. And so uh, that's how somebody takes your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He'll go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Are you an overcomer? If you are a believer, you are. The Apostle John wrote elsewhere, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And so if you're saved by grace through faith and born again, you are an overcomer. It is the Christian who overcomes, not the overcomer who becomes a Christian. We always have a tendency to go for works. We read a scripture like that and we think, well, I need to overcome things in order to really be a Christian. And the Lord says, no, no, you've got it wrong. You are, a, because you're a Christian, you overcome. And so we want to always be on the side of grace. Paul was always on the side of grace, the gospel of grace. At one point he said that they were accusing him of saying that grace might abound, that sin might abound, or sin might abound because of grace. And that's the, you know, you're really touching grace when people stop and think, well, wait a minute, that doesn't seem harsh enough. That doesn't seem uh, bad enough. That doesn't seem a right punishment. Don't we need to do this or that or the other thing? You don't know you're really preaching grace until people say, well, you're telling people they can go ahead and sin. Like I just did. I said, hey, if somebody, if you don't do what God wants you to do, the person next to you will probably, but you shouldn't sit there and think, great, I'm, I'm into that. No, that's the whole idea is you should be motivated by grace and the love of Jesus Christ in order to do that, in order to do the things that he wants you to do. Jesus promised them and us that we're going to be pillars in heaven. You're familiar with calling somebody a pillar in the community. Every one of us will be pillars in the community of saints. He shall go out no more. In one of the songs we sing, Golden City captures the sense of this in a more poetic way. Soon your trials will be over, offered up by mercy's hand. A better view than where you're standing, a doorway to another land. We will meet in the golden city in the new Jerusalem. All our pain and all our tears will be no more. That's what we're talking about. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. We're going to see the new Jerusalem at the end of the Revelation. It isn't Jerusalem in the Middle East rebuilt. It is a city being built that comes down out of heaven and is in orbit above the earth. It's the brilliant pearl-gated jeweled city whose streets are made of gold, where our mansions are being prepared for us by Jesus. It's the most expensive real estate in the universe, you might say. Location, location, location. You and I will live in the new Jerusalem. 
If you have a problem now with tattoos, you're going to have trouble in heaven because it looks like Jesus is going to ink us up. The name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and my new name. Now, I'm obviously having some fun with this idea of being tattooed, but there are other passages in which believers are marked. Ezekiel 9.4, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. Revelation 7, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. I heard the number of those sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. You won't have any regrets if God inks you up. So you might want to think about fonts and colors. Verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the common closing to most of these letters. We should always approach God's word, expecting him to speak to us through it. The United States, the one country in the world that has historically been the place everyone wants to come to. A shining city on a hill. Ronald Reagan loved the phrase. He used it over and over again to describe his vision for what America could be. No one talks about living the French dream or the Cuban dream. It's the American dream that motivates people to risk their life to get here. Taking nothing away from the great communicator or from the American dream, achieving the American dream can make the future kingdom of God seem less urgent to us. Those more in need, those who are oppressed, when you're persecuted, you who are weary and weak, those that grieve or are sick, those who are dying, the kingdom of God is urgent. They're looking forward to the city whose builder and maker is God, not to something on the earth. It's not my fault I was born in the United States. I'm not saying anything bad about the United States. I'm not being unpatriotic. But I am making a point because as we listen to this, what's the point? Uh, Beyond all this good stuff that we're learning, what's the point? The point is there should be some urgency about going to heaven because this world is not our home. And we're not subject to the kinds of persecution and trouble and tribulation that other believers are right now around the world. It may be coming, who knows, but right now we have it relatively easy. And so we need to actually remind ourselves that it's exciting that Jesus says, I have the key of David. I have the key of David. When you die, Gene, you're not going to Hades. You're not headed for the second death. You're coming to heaven. You're coming back with me. Together, we're going to rule over the universe for eternity. And I... I can tend to forget that or or not to be excited about that unless I have a reason to. And so the American dream, prosperity is always a difficult thing. The history of Israel as God's people, when they prospered, they fell into sin. It's just as simple as that. Prosperity, God wanted to prosper them. He did prosper them. And they forgot God and started to go back into the world. And God forbid that we as American Christians would prefer the world to the future, right? So that's the point for us to search our hearts. We're not at home. We therefore ought to always be homesick. It is the sick who appreciate the physician the most, and that would include this.
homesickness. A.W. Tozer said this, in nature, everything moves towards the direction of its hungers. In the spiritual world, it is not otherwise. We gravitate toward our inward longing, provided, of course, that those longings are strong enough. And so we can talk to the Lord today about where we're gravitating. I was going to say what, but I said where. Where are we? Gra- I didn't want you to think I was having a stroke or anything. I know you're ready to rush up here. You never know when I'm liable to go down, you know, but... Uh, what are you gravitating towards? That's the, and you know, I mean, not, you know, physically and especially in your heart, what do you gravitate towards? Is it eternity? Are you excited about eternity? Can you wait to see Jesus? Uh, regardless of all the other exciting, fun things that we can do with our lives, maybe Disneyland will open again in our lifetime, maybe it won't. Uh, but in the meantime, are you ready to meet the Lord? Ready or not, Jesus is coming.